Okay, let's make our way to our seats and let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. We've been working our way, um, Isaiah 40 through 66, and um, we uh, landed in 53 a couple weeks ago, and I thought we would uh, get through it in one week, and the one week has turned into three, and so um, so we're going to hopefully finish that off today. Uh, but before we get into that, I wanted to ask, we're, we're going to have a bit of a kind of an extended introduction here in a second, but I wanted to ask if anybody had any questions so far about what we've been learning from Isaiah 53. This is a, a chapter that foretells the ministry of God's servant. Remember, you might remember that Isaiah 53 shouldn't be taken just as 53, but it's 52.13 through 53.12. So, in fact, what I would strongly suggest you do is you draw a circle around 53 with a little arrow that says, this section doesn't begin here, something like that. This section begins in 53.13. And that way, when you're doing your Bible reading through the year or whatever, and you get here, you'll remember to glance your eyes back up so you can read the section in its entirety. This is a place where uh, the chapter and verse division was um, not well done. Those are exceptional. Um, most of the time they're fairly well done, but this is one of the more famous examples of that division not being great. But any questions so far? Pam, yes. Yeah. And what did you find? I'm, I think I know what you found, but go ahead. Oh. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So let me, let me fill this out just a little bit, okay? Um, a lot of people come to the Bible with the presupposition that miracles couldn't happen. Okay? And based solely on that presupposition, they decide... They, they bring an interpretation to it that's foreign to it. Okay, in this case, the, if you follow the text at face value, you have to accept that Isaiah said that Cyrus would come about 180 years after Isaiah lived. But if your presupposition is that that couldn't happen, that there's no way a prophet could call something 180 years out, what are you left to conclude? Well, what you say is, oh, there must have been somebody later who wrote it using the name Isaiah and what they did was kind of they take like a page from the script of Back to the Future you know how Biff goes into the future and learns the sports outcomes and some of you are nodding your heads others you are like I have no idea what you're talking about um, I'm a child of the 80s um, some of you are like oh yeah great illustration um, others of you don't know um, in this movie, a person goes into the future, finds a, a, a sports encyclopedia. When he goes back into his time, makes a zillion dollars correctly betting the right teams at all times. Okay. And that's what they say, essentially, this person is doing. He's writing with the writing in retrospect, saying Isaiah predicted this when all along he knows what actually happened. Okay. And scholars have... It got to the point in scholarship when scholars basically just assumed that this was the case. They called it 
Deutero-Isaiah, or in some cases they divided it further and called it, get ready for this, Trito-Isaiah, um, that which is uh, the Latin for third. Um, so um, this became very accepted in scholarly circles. Uh, there was uh, one problem. Um, a little boy was throwing rocks one day, and <laughs> he threw a rock into a cave. How many of you little boys or even little girls have thrown rocks into caves before or thrown rocks at things? Well, this is what exactly what he was doing, a very little boy thing to do. And the rock, Pam, hit one of these ceramic canisters, and it made a shattering sound. And the boy thought that sounded unusual, and indeed it was. And he climbed up this little hill, and he found pieces of parchment rolled up and put into these canisters. He didn't know what they were. It was written in an ancient script. And he started, the way the parchments are written is Hebrew goes this way. And so the parchments were sewed edge to edge like this. Kind of like a quilt, but a very narrow one because it's only sewed on one side. And the boy was unsewing them and taking the sheets into town and selling them one by one. He was a boy who threw rocks, but he was also industrious, okay? And somebody who was in the town was an archaeologist. He recognized what was happening. And he had the boy lead him to where he was, and thus were found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in this first cave, it was called the first Qumran cave, was found what's now known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's on display at the Hebrew University um, Library. And it's a rotunda about the size of this room. And the Isaiah scroll goes all the way around. It's an unbroken copy of the book of Isaiah that predates when scholars of the Deutero-Isaiah theory say it could have been written. So there were all these people that said, no, no. Isaiah wrote that, there was a man who came along after Isaiah, he wrote that in retrospect, and it happened in, you know, whatever B.C. or whatever A.D. And suddenly there's a scroll found, written and completed and preserved a significant amount of time before the experts said it could have possibly been written. Does that make sense, everybody? And all the conservative scholars puffed out their chest, and all the liberal scholars pretended it never happened, okay? Um, and, but uh, Hebrew University has it on display, and you can go look at it and see this thing. It's called, it's called 1Q Isaiah A, and it's a complete Isaiah scroll that was uh, written, that was copied probably in 300 AD and has been completely preserved. Yes, sir? That's it. Yeah, yeah, they, well, they, they didn't deny it. They just kind of altered their theory. They're like, well, it still didn't, it, Isaiah still didn't write it. It was kind of like, you know, it, it, it undercut all of what they were saying was true, but they kind of pretended that it didn't, even though it did. So, yes. Scholars in theological fields are not unlike scholars in other fields where they manipulate evidence, um, they use really fancy sounding words to protect their field, 
when when you just explain the meaning of the word, you go, oh, well, that wasn't hard, you know, but they make it sound hard. So, and this happens in all fields. Okay? Other questions? Great question, Kim. Yes, Betty. It was Hebrew, but it, it, have you ever, Betty, have you ever seen an original King James 1611? What did you notice about that? It was probably, could you read it? No. <laughs> no, you couldn't. Because back then, I think F's are F's, and V's are U's. And there are some other ones like that. And it's very hard to read um, because language changes over time. And so the, the script that this Isaiah scroll is written in is written in a very ancient Hebrew script that was not being used or the language had changed. And so if you're trained in it, you recognize it and you know what it is. But if you're not trained in it, it's hard to read. Um, I... I've I have I I've seen it. I, I went to that library. Obviously, they didn't open up the glass and let me look at it. Um, I've seen pictures, facsimiles of it, very up close, and I can make out probably half the words because it's changed a good bit from the Hebrew that I've learned to the Hebrew that's up there. Um, just the characters are different, and I'm sure with a little more training, I could see more. But yeah, so just with what I know, that's there. Yes, Opal. Absolutely, and that's a great question that leads me into my extended introduction. Okay, so before we get to my extended introduction, let's see if there's, I will answer that question in just a moment. Okay, are there any other questions? Um, I, had, I had you turn to Isaiah 53. Why don't you take your Bible ribbon or some other marking device and mark 53 and journey with me for just a moment through some passages. Turn, uh, mark Isaiah 53, and then turn with me to, to John 1. And we're going to rip through some passages very quickly, okay? Turn with me to John 1. I'm sorry, I meant, I, I made a mistake. Go to the last chapter of John. Go to John chapter 21. I was thinking wrongly. Okay. Now go to the, if you're in John 21, one, go up one verse to John 20 verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? Let's read that carefully again. John chapter 20, verse 30. 
Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What do you notice about that phrase that might strike you as a little odd? Jesus is what? The Christ. Is that something that we typically do? When we come to church, do we say, I, not that you would say this on getting into the van with your kids, but today I intend to worship Jesus, the Christ. Or when we sing, when we sing songs, do we typically insert a the between Jesus and Christ? Okay, we've got the Christ. Well, who is the Christ? Well, it says right here that he's the Son of God. The Son of God. Okay. So, Opal, to answer your question, to start to answer your question, this introduces Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, introduces a whole bunch of Old Testament that John is referring to. Let's take a quick review of some of these passages that John has in mind. Turn to Genesis 3, okay? Turn to Genesis 3. Okay? The man and the woman have sinned. They've eaten the fruit. God says, in the day you eat it, you'll die. God comes to the man and says, why did you eat? And he blames the woman. Okay? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Okay? He blames the woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And then she gives a confession, and I ate. So then the Lord turns to the serpent, and he says this in the presence of the man and the woman. This is really important that he says this in front of them. He says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. Now go down to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, our translation says bruise, but it should be crush. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what do we conclude from these verses? What do we conclude from these verses? That there's a person coming who will crush the serpent and the sin that he created. We're to conclude that he'll be born. He's going to be a son of a woman. And we confirm that he's going to be a son. He, he will crush. He will crush. For the rest of the Old Testament, the identity of this person, this son, is going to be established. Okay? Let's turn to Deuteronomy 18 for the next one. Now, there's more in between. We're hitting the highlights. Okay, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of your Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18. Go to verse 15. 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So what are we to conclude from these verses? That God is going to raise up a Jewish son. God is going to raise up a Jewish son. You could also go back to the promises of Abraham. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And he says seed, singular, not seeds as in many sons, but one son, one son in particular, will be a blessing to all the nations. And here in Deuteronomy 18.15, we're told that this person will be a Jewish man. And what will he be? He'll be a what? What will he be? A prophet. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a preacher. Okay. Now, go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Again, there are many other passages we could turn to. Psalm 2. Oops. There's many other passages we could turn to, but I'm hitting the highlights. We're going to turn to three psalms. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and take count, to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, that's important. The, De- the prophet in, from Deuteronomy 18 is going to be an anointed person. And now suddenly we're talking about an anointed person, a person who sits in the heavens and laughs. Go down to... Um, Uh, Go down to verse 10. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so here we're told that this son is his anointed one. His son will rule. His son will one day judge everybody and everything. Now let's turn to Psalm 22. Turn to Psalm 22. So far what we've heard is nothing but majesty from this son. He's going to crush the serpent. He's a prophet that people will listen to. He is a son that rules and will bring wrath. But now we find out something different from this son. Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. In this psalm, we go down to say, like, verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. He says in verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. Now, even Jewish people knew that David wasn't talking about himself because David never had his hands pierced or his feet pierced. And so they knew that this was a prophetic coming figure. 
Jewish people did not understand, however, to put these together. So this remains sort of a disconnected prediction of what the Messiah, the Christ, would be. The Christ, by the way, means the anointed one. Okay, Christ the anointed. And so remember we just read that in Psalm 2. Kiss the son, my anointed. The priest is coming, is anointed. Now turn to Psalm 110. There's another person that's anointed, and it's a king and a priest. These are both anointed. Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This son, this Lord, is going to be a Lord. He's going to be a king. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Your mighty scepter rules in the midst of your enemies. He's going to be a king. Go down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so now we're told that this divine person, this Lord, is going to be a king and a priest. And in the Old Testament, that was not allowed. Uh, king Uzziah committed this sin. He was a king who grew in his arrogance and stormed into the temple and took a censer. And the people said, no, they shouted him down. They said, don't do this. And he grew leprous the moment he went in because kings were not allowed to be priests. But this king will be a special priest, like the priest in Genesis 18 from Melchizedek, the, which means king of righteousness, and he rules Salem, the city of peace. The king of righteousness rules the city of peace, and he receives 10% from Abraham. King Melchizedek brings to Abraham bread and wine. The king of righteousness rules the city of peace. And we're told here that this is the priesthood that the Lord Jesus Christ will have. It's one of a kind. Nobody else can have it but the Lord Jesus. But this coming person, he's also a king. So we've toured some of these. We also have verses like Isaiah, chapters like Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, 14. He'll be born of a virgin, and he'll be called God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. So, Opal, what we see is we have these predictions of the Messiah that predict the anointed one as a conquering hero in some form. And then we have these predictions of a suffering servant. But in Isaiah 53, those two things converge where the suffering servant is the conquering Messiah. Okay, So let's turn back to Isaiah 53, and we'll note this. We've already noted that he's a human, and now we're noting that he is he suffers severely. Let's look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice... The triple in verse 4, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. When it says that he was despised, it literally means he was thought lightly of. He became contemptible in people's eyes. He became contemptible in people's eyes. I remember I was, 
I don't remember, I, I was in early college, and I went to a Walmart to buy something. As I was walking in, there were three police officers, and they had taken a woman who had gotten caught for shoplifting. They had her hands handcuffed and her feet handcuffed, and handcuffs connecting the hand handcuffs and the feet handcuffs, and they were picking her up and carrying her out. And she smelled awful for she had urinated all over herself. She was contemptible. She was caught stealing and put up a fight and then had this accident. This is how people were looking down on the Lord. This is how people despised him. They thought less of him, though he is, of course, the king of glory. It says that he's smitten, stricken, and afflicted. This word stricken is to strike in such a way that it hurts. Isaiah uses this word in um, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, when the angel takes the tongs and sets the burning coal on Isaiah's lips, and that searing pain from the coal would have stricken him. We're told in Jonah chapter 3 that God sent a worm to strike the plant. The plant shriveled up and died. Smitten. This is a more severe word. It is an intensive word. It is a military term. It's used in Ezekiel 33, 21 for the burning and raising of a city. When enemies Enemies often took cities as prizes. You can imagine why. They, they didn't pay their troops like we pay our troops today. They, the, the payment for the troops was the riches of the city. And the troops would want to go in and take all the stuff out they could, but sometimes cities became so odious, so hate, uh, so the object of such hate, that the foreign soldiers didn't want anything to do with it, usually after long and protracted battles. This, in fact, is what happened to Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar I'm sorry, when Titus took it in the first century. The troops swarm into the city and just burn it and raise it, and it's a bloodbath. And that's what it says the Lord suffered. He was struck and raised and destroyed. He's afflicted. He's bent down. He's wretched and pitiful. And again, this is another intensifier. He's gravely bowed down. He's been dealt a mortal blow. In verse 5, we have another intense, uh, another triple. Pierced, crushed, and laid. The word pierced is a, is a rare word, and it means uh, to be wounded in the sense of, it, it most commonly refers to piercing your hand. Um, I was never more happy, uh, I, well, I, I need to say what I was happy about. We transitioned away from Awana, which wasn't the object of my joy. What was the object of my joy was I never had to work with the Awana Grand Prix cars again. I could actually use real wood in working with uh, Pinewood Derby cars because the cars that Awana were provided uh, were was this like balsam wood, I think. It was so, so cheap and flimsy and light and I still have the scar on my hand. I was trying to use a chisel to knock out some portions so to get it in the exact shape that my 
child wanted, and like an idiot, I was chiseling toward my hand, and I like to keep a sharp chisel. Um, the wood broke. It just snapped off, and the chisel went past the wood and right into my hand, and I ended up in the emergency room with a pierced hand. And I, I felt, maybe, have, have any of you ever pierced your hand? It feels like in that moment your heart shifts positions from your chest to your hand. And for four days my hand beat like my heart, okay? I still have the scar. This is the word pierced. Piercing of a hand. You can imagine what it was like in the ancient world to have a stick. You're walking along with your stick and the stick breaks and runs right through your hand. That's what happened to this Messiah. He was pierced. He was crushed. This idea of crushed is um, the, the idea of um, being ground down to the point that crumbles begin collecting. Okay. Um, if, if you have a, a really strong concrete wall, the only thing you can do is just chip in, chip in, chip and chip away at it and chip away at it until there's a pile of rubble beneath and you just grind on this thing and until it crumbles. There was a, a construction project this summer just below where we're staying and the poor construction workers put the concrete footers in the wrong place and they sent some laborers down there and for a week solid they jackhammered away on these footers and had to lower these footers about that far. There were, I think, nine of them. It took them a whole week. I would drive by and see just the tiniest little progress, and you could hear the jackhammer going all day. That's the word crushed, ground, hit, until there's just a pile left. He's chastised. This is the rod. Now, we could go on. There's a lot more words of oppression here, but he was oppressed, afflicted. He was oppressed, again, verses 7 through 10. He was judged. He was cut off. He was stricken. He was crushed. He was put to grief. Okay? Has the author driven his point home yet? This is a, a suffering servant, and you can go back and see some of that suffering in Psalm 22. But what did we say? What did we say? To this point, there's been prophecies mainly dealing with the glory of this coming servant, and prophecies that talk about his suffering. But none of them put these two together in such a full way. And so I want us to see the fullness of this. Go back to 52, verses 10 through 12. I'm sorry, 53, 10 through 12. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. God is going to prosper his hand so that he sees his days. Out of his anguish of soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The word satisfied is, uh, literally, it means to be full. 
the suffering servant in his anguish will look out and see the success that God is going to give him and that good news will fill him to the point of utter satisfaction. On Thursday night, I got to have dinner with some longtime friends. We ate and had a big meal, and at the end of the meal, there was just a few bites left on the plate, and my friend said, why don't you finish it off? And I said, one more bite would ruin it. <laughs> I was satisfied. I was full. That was it. And that, that's the idea. This person is going to be satisfied. He's going to be full. It says that he will make many accounted as righteous. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Opal, this answers your question a little bit more. This is the concept that the Apostle Paul uses with the word justification. Okay? When Paul says that we have, Romans 5, 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, having been justified by faith. The word justify, this is a, it might sound kind of technical, but it's, it, it's important. The word justified doesn't mean he makes you righteous. It means that he declares you to be righteous. And when you are glorified, that is when you are made righteous. Now the declaration of righteousness is uttered from the king of kings, from the judge of all. And so his declaration in a courtroom stands. Perhaps this would be a good illustration. I, I did get to go see the adoption that Matthew and Heather had, and, and they told them before the adoption took place, they said, this is irrevocable. I don't know that they said it in those words, but the judge essentially said, as soon as I say this, it's done and it can't be reversed. You're aware of that. And they said, yes, we are aware of that. We accept that this can't change once... Did, did the judge take the gavel and knock it? I don't recall. But if they did, then that would be the moment. And that's God's moment. He says, I declare you to be righteous. You are it's binding now. And the God who speaks reality into existence has declared you righteous when you put your faith and trust in Christ. It is done on his declaration, not on your works. And when the day comes for you to pass over to the other side, you will be made righteous. And that explains why it is we struggle with sin. We we struggle with sin. There's this false notion that, that we shouldn't say we're sorry to the Lord until we really feel sorry, or until we're sure we won't do it again. Hogwash. We're broken. We're sinners. You're going to do it again. Okay? And you just tell the Lord you're sorry. I'm, by your grace, I'm going to run from this. And you're going to do it again, and you say the same thing to the Lord. You're declared righteous. He's declared you to be righteous, and that covers you from your sins, past, present, and future. And that's what Isaiah is alluding to here. 
many shall be accounted righteous. Upon the judge's declaration, you'll be righteous. And he follows through on that declaration and actually makes you righteous when you pass over to the other side. Verse 12, he will have many. How do we know that? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why will he have many? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many. He will have many because he became sin for many. In fact, we're told in 1 John 2, 2 that he became the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Christ's suffering and atonement is sufficient to cover the sins of all people forevermore because he's co-equal with God and therefore he, he quenches the wrath of an eternal God. And this act that the suffering servant does provides the substitutionary gift for the many. And how many years before Christ came was this predicted? Anybody want to remember? 700. Dirk got it. 700. How accurate, huh? Now, you've probably heard it said that Old Testament saints looked ahead to this person in faith and we look back to this person in faith. Do you see from Isaiah 53 how true that is? They had symbols and so forth to lead them to trust that a person was coming that would make an end to all those symbols. And we look back at the person who made an end to all those symbols. They looked forward in faith, and we look back in faith. Therefore, Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. Whether you're pre-Christ or post-Christ, you live by faith. You walk by faith. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little journey through the Old Testament about the Messiah and seeing how they converge into this one. We'll move forward beginning two weeks from now. We have a guest speaker for next week, uh, Rick Atkinson, of Acorn Ministries is going to be presenting in both Sunday School and Worship next week. Looking forward to having him. Um, but we'll jump back into Isaiah 54 um, following that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this passage where we see so much of your truth converge on one place. And that's in part why this passage has such special significance to Christians the world over time immemorial. And I pray that we would continue to marvel at how you put your words in the mouth of Isaiah so that these people could see the coming and so that we can see how you so clearly predicted his arrival and his substitutionary atonement. May we place our faith and trust in that afresh. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.